actually we've been doing this for about eight months, seven months, I don't know, but we're going to be finishing today uh, kind of our series in the book of Genesis. Um, you can throw up the PowerPoint there, Katie. Yeah, we, we, we started this patriarch series, I, I don't even remember, back in March, I think it was, looking at the faith and the failings of our fathers, the lives of the patriarchs, going through the book of Genesis. And uh, today's the last chapter we're getting to, chapter 50. So you've made it. Shoot, we've made it. And uh, how's it going to end? What are you know, The last couple chapters of the book of Genesis are filled with last words. Um, uh, a couple weeks ago, we looked at Jacob's last words to his sons, passing on that inheritance of the birthright and the blessing to his, to his sons. And in this chapter, chapter 50, we'll look at it in a second, we get Joseph's last words. Uh, but in a sense, this is also Moses' last words in this book, in this opening book of the, of, of the Bible, Genesis. Uh, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible we call the Pentateuch. But he wrote them, I don't know if you've considered this, he didn't just write one long book. It would have been a long book, right? Because the Pentateuch is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That would have been a really long book. Moses didn't do that, though. He didn't just write one book. He wrote them as five books. And so here today in Genesis 50, we get to the final words that uh, he has for us in this book of beginnings. And so the final words we're going to look at, Genesis chapter 50, both serves to sum up some of the key themes is Genesis, in Genesis and prepares us for the next book coming up, Exodus, but not only for that book, but for the rest of the storyline of the Bible that's going to be unfolded uh, developed in writing over the next 1,500 years by 40 different authors guided by the Spirit of God and will be carried out in history even to this very day and until Christ returns. And so what is the Spirit of God in Moses going to leave us with at the end of this first book? Well, let's, let's read it together. Uh, I'll read it for you uh, first and then we'll, we'll dive into it a little bit. Genesis chapter 50, verse 1. If you'd like to follow along, you can follow along on the screen. There are pew Bibles uh, in the, there's some blue Bibles in the, in the pews around you if you want to follow along or you can use your phone or whatever, however you like to, to bring God's word in. Um, but I'll read Genesis chapter 50. Then Joseph fell on his father's faith, face and wept over him and kissed him, Jacob having died at the end of chapter 49. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him, for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak to, in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I'm about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now therefore let me please go up and bury my father, and then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go. Go up, bury your father, just as he made you swear. So Joseph went to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there that went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians, and therefore the place was named Abel Mizraim. It's beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he commanded them, for his sons carried him into the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave 
of the field of Machpelah, the east of Mamre, which Abraham brought with the field of Ephraim the Hittite to possess as a burying place. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to him, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you. And you shall carry up my bones from here. And Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Amen and the end of the book of Genesis. Lord, I pray that uh, you'd unfold this text to us as we, uh, we want to hear what it is that uh, what the, your word is saying to us, not only in this text, but through your, your, the entire scope of your word. Open up our hearts as we open up your word this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. So in this final text here, uh, Genesis chapter 50, we get the final of three sojourning principles. The final of three sojourning principles, that is, how do we live as people awaiting a kingdom? Um, how, do, how are we to live in light of the fact that we're not residing in the land of the promise? We're not living in the land of the promise. Canada, I hate to break it to you, Canada is not the land of the promise. It's not. And how are we to live in light of the fact that we are citizens of another kingdom and we're waiting for a savior to appear? The setting of Genesis 50, if you, if you noticed in that, even as I read it, the setting jumped back and forth between Egypt and Canaan and Egypt and Canaan and with, uh, with Joseph asking Pharaoh, can I go up and bury my father in the land of Canaan and I'm going up to Canaan, Ca- not Canaan, that's my son, hi, going up to Canaan and then returning back to Egypt and then Joseph in his last words telling uh, his brothers and, their, and his family, don't, uh, when you leave, Canaan to go to Egypt, take my bones with you. So the setting is jumping back and forth. And the main concern here, at the end of Genesis, these last few chapters, as we've noticed in the end of Genesis, is the children of Israel now dwelling among the Egyptians in the land that is not the land that God had promised to their fathers. And we know from Genesis 15, for example, that they're going to be in Egypt for... A number of generations, hundreds of years, they're going to be in Egypt. And 
a main concern at the end of Genesis that we've been left with is how do we live in that land awaiting the promise? And it connects with one of the major themes in the book of Genesis. Remember in the book of Genesis starts us out in Genesis chapter 3, it is not long into the storyline of humanity in which we find ourselves exiled. In Genesis chapter 3, we humanity have done what God has forbidden and told us not to do. We, 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 we rejected his authority over us. We rejected his word over us. We rejected his rule over us. And in taking of that which was forbidden, we took to ourselves that that, that, that which only belongs to God, that divine authority to, to, to set the course of our life, the right and the wrongness of it. We took that unto ourselves and having taken it sinfully, rebelliously, wickedly upon ourselves, we were banished from that place of paradise that God had created for us to dwell with him. Remember, Genesis chapter 3 ends with a... <laughs> my, my, my kids like to read that action Bible. It's like this manga version of the Bible. Plays up the, plays up the uh, action parts of it. But you know, Genesis 3 ends with this angel guarding the gate to paradise. And uh, the rest of the Bible can be read as a, as a story of our exile until we can... It, it, it ends in the book of Revelation where it says, and again, the dwelling place of God is with man. The whole storyline of the Bible can be read as a story of pilgrims longing for a home. That's Hebrews chapter 11. We, we, are, we are those longing for a home. And so it's only appropriate that Genesis, the book of beginning, should end precisely with where we find ourselves even today, dwelling just as much outside of the land of the promise as Joseph and his brothers are. And what we've noticed in these final chapters of the book of, of Genesis is we found these, these principles of how do you live awaiting the kingdom. And we looked at two already. Uh, one of the first ones we looked at, I think this was Genesis 46 to 40, yeah, 46, was we looked at the principle of intentionality. That having been called to be a holy nation, God's people must with intention preserve their distinctiveness during their sojourn in a land of idolatry. Actually, being intentional about the distinctiveness of the people of God, that literally the, the, the word church means that those who've been called out to be assembled together, called out, a called out gathering. We are people who have been called out. And with intentionality, we live as people who are citizens of another kingdom. We looked also at the principle of blessing that during the time, this was Genesis 46 into 47, during the time of our sojourn, we bless our neighbors with our words. This was Jacob going into Pharaoh's presence and blessing him. This was seek the welfare of the city and pray on its behalf. We bless our neighbors with our words and we work for their good. This is Joseph working for the good of the Egyptians as we watch and wait for God's kingdom to come. And today we're coming to the third and final sojourning principle in these last chapters of the book of Genesis. And this is how I want to sum up chapter 50. It's the sojourning principle of faith. During our sojourn in this age, the repentant live by grace and in faith experience exodus through death, awaiting God's visitation. So we're going to unpack today in Genesis chapter 50. During our sojourn in this age, the repentant live by grace and in faith experience exodus through death, awaiting God's visitation. Let's unpack that a little bit here. 
And then the question being, how do we live? How do we live as exiles and aliens in this land awaiting for the fulfillment of God's promise? Well, these final cha- this final chapter, the final verses of Genesis here point us to an answer, and, a, and it's an answer that connects us with one of the major themes both of the book of Genesis and, uh, and through the entire Bible. The repentant live by grace. It is an act of God's grace that we live. So in, in, in the middle of this chapter, chapter 50, in verses 15 to 22, we get a replay of an earlier scene in Genesis. Like the climax, the emotional climax of the book of Genesis comes uh, when Joseph reveals his identity to his brothers, doesn't it? I mean, his brothers who... Uh, sought to kill him, who threw him in a pit, who sold him into slavery, who started this chain of events where Joseph would find himself a slave, uh, a a slave, and then even unjustly accused and thrown into prison. This whole chain of events that, that led to 13 years of Joseph's suffering And then his brothers come before him and he has the opportunity, he has the motive, he has the power to get back at them. Remember, he has every every opportunity, he has all the strength and all the power. His brothers come back, he's been exalted to second in command of the whole country. And his brothers don't recognize him, but he recognizes his brothers and they come because they have no food, they're begging, and, and he has the power to destroy them. But what he does is he tests them and after a couple of meetings with them, he reveals his identity to them. And they bow before him, expecting judgment and death. And yet he reveals himself to them and says, It is I, your brother Joseph. God sent me here before you to preserve you. And so we have kind of a flashback of that scene here in chapter 50. So, so when... When Joseph's brothers, 50 verse 15, when Joseph's brothers see that their father's dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. So they send a message to Joseph saying, your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of God, your father. It's interesting, one commentary I read said they basically use every single word in Hebrew that they could use to describe their sin. Right? The transgression, their sin, they did evil. They're they're owning what they have done. They've they've already repented in a sense once. They've already been reconciled to Joseph, but they're, they're worried that still there may be judgment awaiting them. And Joseph weeps when he, when they speak this to them, And his brothers also then, they they come and they fall down before him. They say, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoken kindly to them. It's ironic. There's an irony here. Because Joseph literally says, do I speak in the place of God? However, the irony is this. In the, in the context of the book of Genesis, leading up to this point, jo- Joseph is, in fact, speaking. 
in the place of God. Joseph is, in his words given to his brothers, he is setting the entire, at least the storyline of his life in the book of Genesis. He is setting that storyline and the meaning of of that storyline in front of his brothers. And what Moses is doing, and what Moses has been doing in this story of not only Joseph, but Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, Moses has been speaking to us about who God is and who we are. He's been speaking to us about our problem of our sin and our wickedness and our rebellion and our transgression against the holy God and about God's character toward us. And so Joseph is indeed here at the end of Genesis in a way speaking, yes, for God. Not only God's deliverance of not only his brothers, but all who are in exile on the basis of their sin. That means all of us. And Joseph assures them as they come to him in repentance. He assures them of their forgiveness on the basis of this key theme in the book of Genesis. And that has been this. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And and Moses writes this in Joseph's mouth, but this is the mouth of God to us. What we have intended for evil against God, as we have walked away and cursed him and spat at him and rebelled against him and, 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 and walked our own wicked path in our own wicked ways, that God himself, this, none of this takes God by surprise. None of the violence of humanity takes God from by surprise. None of the slander of humanity takes God by surprise. None of the idolatry of humanity takes God for, by surprise. Nothing takes God by surprise. And he is working out his purposes. This is the, the, the crazy offensive like core truth of the book of Genesis is that God actually works out his purposes through the sinfulness of humanity to redeem that same sinful humanity. That is a ridiculous thought that offends us to all of our being, particularly those of us who like to think, I don't know, it offends some of our sense of justice, it offends some of our sense of human responsibility, but it's a crazy thought that God is pleased to work his purposes out through sinful humanity to save sinful humanity. And as we come and approach God, by means of his grace, coming before him in repentance, we find our life in him as an act of his mercy and an act of his grace. Grace. God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within I was talking to one of you guys this week, a guy here who struggles so much with this concept of grace. With all that I have done in sinning against God, with all that my life has been in rejecting Him, in turning up my nose to Him, in in violating His holiness, how can God love me? How can God extend His grace and mercy to me? It's been a theme of the entire book of Genesis. In fact, just go back and think, I've been calling this series this whole time, The Faith and the Failings of Our Fathers, because sometimes we approach the lives of these people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and we think, these are the heroes. And one thing, one theme you should have gotten as we've gone through this book, 
These men and these women were men and women as we are. They were men and women who God chose and plucked out of obscurity. He chose their family to produce his purposes among and within. And sometimes they were so boneheaded, it took a long time. So Abraham, for example, Abraham is is presented in the book of Genesis and referred to in the New Testament as a paradigm of the man of faith. Genesis presents him as a paradigm of the man of faith. The book of Romans and the book of Hebrews and the book of Galatians point to Abraham as the paradigm of the man of faith. But what did we learn about Abraham as we were walking through this? We learned Abraham was this person who was plucked out of an idolatrous lifestyle, worshiping the gods of his fathers, bowing down to idols with a wife who was barren, who there, um, in whom there was no hope that she could be the one through whom Messiah would come. There was no more unlikely candidate to be the one that God chose. Yet God chose Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 12, when God chose Abraham, he, 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 he responds by faith. Yes, thank God for giving Abraham the faith to respond, to leave the land that you had given him, to go into the land that you would show him. But the first thing that happens is he's tested and there's a famine in the land and he runs down to Egypt. I need help. And when he runs down to Egypt, he's like, well, I'm really important because God gave me these problems. So, so honey, why don't you just tell him you're my sister? You're not as important. doesn't really matter what happens to you. I'm the one who God spoke to. I'm the one who's important. And Abraham's sister is taken as another man's wife, and God preserves her and protects her. And Abraham, come on, what are you doing? And in God's grace, he brings Abraham back into the land, into the land of promise. And Abraham starts doing better. He starts trusting in the promises that God has given him. He starts walking by faith. Yes. And then he, oh man, Abraham's big problem as a man of faith was not trusting God enough and thinking, man, this has taken a while, God. You promised that I'd have a child. You promised that my offspring would be one who would bless the world. It's been 20 years. And, and, and his wife says, well, why don't you go into my maidservant, Hagar, she just use her. And we looked at that, that, that Moses was not running away from presenting Abraham as in all of the horrific things that he did. All of the, and I, I preached a message on domestic abuse from that chapter. And I really, with all that I'm in me, as, as I study the word of God, Moses is presenting Abraham and saying, you Israelites who just came out of slavery in Egypt for 400 years and you're so upset at your Egyptian taskmasters who, who, who abused you? Well, Abraham did the same thing to his Egyptian servant. It's not an easy chapter. And Abraham, as he's walking as a man of faith, he's stumbling over himself. The faith and failings of our father. But God continually reappears to him and continually reaffirms to Abraham that the covenant will not be based upon Abraham's faithfulness, but will be based on God's faithfulness. This is the covenant. This is God telling Abraham, let's make the covenant together. Let's take the animals. Let's separate them and walk the trail of blood because whoever violates this covenant May the same thing happen to him as what happened to these animals. So Abraham, let's do this. Let's walk the trail of blood together. But before Abraham can do it, God puts, God puts Abraham to sleep so he cannot do it. And God walks the trail of blood by himself because it's not going to be dependent upon Abraham. It's dependent upon God. 
Yet thankfully, by God's grace, that man of faith learns to walk by faith. It's credited to God, to him as, God credits it to him as righteousness, and it begins to transform Abraham, and he begins to walk by faith. And so the greatest test of Abraham's life after God has given him the son, Isaac, is to say, take your son, your only son whom you love, and offer him back to me. And you look at that and you think, how absurd. How could God call him to do that? How could Abraham respond in faith to do that? It's because Abraham has been trained over decades to learn how to hear and to obey God's voice. It didn't come out of nowhere. And the book of Hebrews tells us Abraham must have thought that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead. The book of Hebrews tells us that's Abraham's motivation. And he does. And he, 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 he's, that, he's that man of faith. Well, that son Isaac grows up. He has a son Jacob. Jacob is the paradigmatic Old Testament picture of the man of failure. Jacob before he's born. God chose Jacob before he was born. And what I like to say is God chose Jacob before he was born. That's a great thing because no one would have chosen Jacob after he was born. He came out of the womb grabbing onto his older brother's heel trying to usurp his position. When he's a young man, his, he wants, the, he wants the, the birthright, you know, the double portion of inheritance from his father. So when he's a young man, his brother comes in after hunting. I'm famished. I would do anything for a bowl of soup. Anything? Anything? I just happen to be making some soup. Let's do that trade, brother. He manipulates into his brother into selling him the birthright. Later, he lies to his father to give him the blessing. He is a heel grabber. He's a manipulator. And he's on the run for most of his life because his family wants to kill him. Even after God reveals himself to him, at Bethel, Abraham says to God, after seeing the angels descending and descending on that stairway to heaven, Jacob says, God, if you take care of me, well, then I'll come back here and then you'll be my God. Can you imagine that? In your own life, God reveals himself to you in a vision where you literally see him on the top of a ladder with angels descending and ascending. God saying, I will protect you. I will be with you. I will go with you wherever you go. And you say, well, God, if you're still here in 10 years, well, then I'll serve you. Then you'll be my God. Jacob is a mess. I, I love hearing your guys' comments as I was preaching these sermons because a lot of you guys came up to me and were like, I didn't realize what a jerk Jacob was. Jacob's faith like his father Abraham's, remains imperfect, leading to significant consequences to his own family. And so that he even testifies to Pharaoh at the end of his life that his days are evil and few. However, we, we do see growth and maturity. We do see faith and obedience in Jacob growing, especially near the end of his life, as he pauses before migrating to Egypt, as he blesses his sons, demanding that he be buried in the land of promise. And Jacob is presented as the prototypical man of struggle. That's what God changed his name to, right? Israel, the one who struggles, the one who contends. Who contends against the fulfillment of God's promises, yet is chosen and blessed solely as an act of grace. And finally, we looked at the lives of Joseph and Judah. Joseph, the sacrificial lamb of God. 
It's interesting, I didn't notice until after I preached that passage that twice in that passage of Jacob blessing Joseph and his sons, Jacob says to Joseph, God, your shepherd. And it hit me that Joseph is presented as, that sac- as a sacrificial lamb. And then Judah, the lion, who offers himself willingly for the sake of his condemned brother. And the picture of God's grace and Messiah that is going to come, the sacrificial lamb who's going to offer himself, the lion of the tribe of Judah. It blew my mind. It's kind of sad I didn't see that as I was preaching that to you. But, um, but these people were a mess. And it's a major theme of the book of Genesis and a major theme of the scriptures that despite the sin and the failings of us and despite the sins and the failings of God's covenant people, God directs history toward the redemption of humanity through them. And it's because, it's only because, it is only because of the promise of God and not on the faithfulness of men. Or just quite simply, as Joseph said, as you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And it's the key theme of the Bible. If you read Genesis and didn't get anything else, this is what I want you to get. I don't care how messed up, I mean, I care, but it doesn't matter how messed up your family has been. It does not matter how wicked, the wickedness you once walked in. It does not matter. God is a graceful God. He is forgiver of sins. He has done everything in sending Messiah Jesus Christ. He has done everything to stand in your place to bear the wrath of God on your behalf. And your life, no matter where you've been and no matter what your family was like, your life can be this picture of God's grace because God is a seeking God. He sent his son Jesus into the world to seek and to save the lost and to make propitiation for their sin. And it is such good news that the redemption, our redemption, our salvation does not rest on our faithfulness but on God's. So grace, we will live by grace. During our surge in the end, the repentant live by grace and in faith experience exodus through death. Now what do I mean by that? This, this might seem a little bit less positive, but it is a key theme of the entire book of Genesis, and it's brought to the forefront here in these concluding chapters. As Jacob said, the, the years of my sojourning have been evil and short. Right? That's what Jacob testified to Pharaoh. What's your testimony? What's your testimony, Jacob? My testimony is, my life has been short and hard and wicked. That's my testimony. And a theme brought to the forefront in this concluding chapter is that life in exile is filled with violence, wickedness, injustice, sorrow, and misery, yet this world is not our home. We pray every day as Christians. We pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But we recognize that prayer teaches us to remember every day that this world is not our home. And it's a good, good thing that this world is not our home. It's a good, good thing that God has stationed that angel outside of Eden. That we do not think that this is our home in this chaos. It is not. 
And until kingdom comes, all of us, unless Jesus returns to set up his kingdom, all of us will die in the faith that this world is not our home. And what's really interesting is in this chapter how Jacob's death is exodus. Jacob's death is exodus. He has been living in uh, Egypt now, I think it's for 17 years at this point, and his death is exodus. When he dies, just think about the beginning of this chapter as I read it. When he dies, Joseph goes to Pharaoh and says, let my father go. And Pharaoh actually, thankfully, this Pharaoh says, go and bury your father. And then there's this huge procession that goes from Egypt to Canaan. And, and, and I love the Canaanites even like, wow, these Egyptians are really mourning and it's, they, they're confusing the family of, of, of Jacob with the Egyptians. But, but this procession from Egypt to Canaan to celebrate and to mourn the death of Jacob. And at the end of the chapter, Joseph says to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. I'm going to join you in the exodus. It's the final words of the book of Genesis. He was put in a coffin in Egypt, but, but here the writer of Hebrews sets Joseph's final words in this context, by faith, Joseph. So by faith. By faith, death, death as exodus. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. And so Jacob and Joseph both knew that they would be joining the children of God through their own death, even though they would not experience them themselves. Their own death with this, in their own death was this experience of exodus. That until God brings in the kingdom and sets all things new, we dwell in a world of sin and violence, idolatry and darkness. This language is death as exodus is actually found in the New Testament. The book of Luke. It's really interesting, a really interesting phrase that pops into the book of Luke. It says, eight days after these things, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory. And then Luke puts this interesting phrase. And spoke to him of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. That's the word, this, this exodus, that, that this, this leaving of this sinful world that Jesus was going to accomplish when he goes to Jerusalem, when he's given over, when he suffers and is rejected and died and is tortured and killed and executed. And then he's put in the ground and then he raises up again and then he leaves sit at the right hand of God until he should return again to bring in his kingdom. I don't want to die. I don't want to die. I don't fear it. In the New Testament, Paul talks a lot about it, particularly to the Christian. He, said, he says that there should be some part of us, Romans chapter 8, there should be some part of us that is connected with the Spirit of God in us that so groans over our plight in this sinful world that we are groaning inwardly with groans inexpressible longing for the redemption of the sons of God. 
in the kingdom of heaven. This is why the Bible ends with the prayer, Maranatha, come Lord quickly. It's a hard prayer to play. It's a hard prayer to pray if you consider, if you think that this world is your home. Let us weep as a man longing for his home. There's an old Rich Mullins song that said that. Let us weep. If I weep, let it be as a man longing for his home. By grace, having received forgiveness of God, we understand by faith that we will likely die before kingdom come, and therefore death is exodus to the one who believes. And finally, he says, it says, uh, I, I wrote, in faith experience exodus through death, awaiting God's visitation. There's this amazing, this blew my mind this week as I got to this last, these last verses of Genesis. Oh, <laughs> and I don't have it up here, so I'm going to have to read it. These last two chapters, last two verses of Genesis, this is what Joseph says to his brothers. He says, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you'll carry up my bones from here. Twice in the last two verses. God will visit you. It's amazing. Throughout the book of Genesis, I told you last week or two weeks ago, through the book of Genesis, I put the genre of Genesis, and I'm probably being a little facetious here, I put the genre of Genesis as mystery, right? You've heard me say that. Where in Genesis chapter 3, God gives us an amazing promise. He speaks it to the serpent, but it's in the hearing of the man and the woman. And he says, uh, I will put enmity between you and her offspring. Uh, oh my gosh, how am I... <laughs> I want to say it rightly, and for some reason it's slipping my mind right here, exactly the wording of it. To the woman, uh, he's to, to the serpent, he says, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, he, your head and you shall bruise his heel. Man, that was hard to get up. <laughs> but the book of Genesis unfolds for us waiting for this offspring of the woman who's going to come and crush Satan's head. And we continually get candidates for Messiah coming. So, so we, we are to think in, in Adam and Eve's sons, Cain and Abel, that, that perhaps Abel's going to be the chosen son who's going to crush Satan's head, but there's enmity between them. And in fact, Cain rises up and kills Abel, his brother. And then so they have another child and they call him anointed. Maybe he's going to be the one to be the Messiah. And it's not him, he dies. And you go through those genealogies and it says, and he died, 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 and the serpent seems to be winning. And then Noah comes along and Noah's like, of this old generation, he's found blameless. Maybe Noah's going to be the one. And, and God saves the world and humanity through Noah. But Noah gets off the boat, gets drunk, and dies. It's not going to be Noah. And then you're like, it's going to be Abraham. It's not Abraham. Is it going to be Isaac? No. You get to the end of the book and you're like, it's got to be Joseph. Joseph's got to be the deliverer. No. And you get Judah. You get this promise given to Judah. The scepter shall not be departed from Judah. So you think it's going to be Judah's son. And it's like, no. And you keep on going through Genesis. Who is it going to be? 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 And then Joseph in the last two verses says twice, what? 
God will visit you. I never saw this before. We have been waiting for visitation of Messiah the entire 50 chapters of Genesis. The last two verses says twice, God will visit you. And you say, well, Dan, it says God will visit you and deliver you from Egypt. So maybe he's just talking about the the appearance given in Moses. The, The problem with that is, look what Jesus says in chapter 19. When Jesus draws near and sees Jerusalem, the city, he weeps over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side, and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. They will not leave one stone or another upon you, because you did not know, in the Greek it says, the day of your visitation. And we know in the book of Hebrews as well, and actually it's in the book of 1 Corinthians, that Jesus was the deliverer of the Israelites in Egypt as well. This visitation that God will be with his people, that God will visit his people. Emmanuel, God with us. I didn't know I'd be preaching Christmas this morning. I thought I was finishing Genesis, and I got to the end of Genesis, and I realized I am preaching Christmas. That God himself will visit us to free us from our slavery to sin. He will visit us in order to bring that grace that saves and delivers to us. And he has visited us in Christ. And you know this word visitation is only used in one other passage in the entire New Testament. And do you know where it's used? And when I read this, it blew my mind again. Because he's one other time in the New Testament. It is used in the same two verses in 1 Peter that we found our other two sojourning principles. It's used in 1 Peter chapter 12, where we talked about the principle of intentionality and we talked about the principle of blessing. And I didn't, and I skipped over this, I didn't even see it until I woke up at six o'clock this morning and went through my sermon again. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. It's as if Peter, as he's writing his book, 1 Peter, if he's got the last three chapters or four chapters of Genesis open in front of him. In these two verses, it's, it's unreal. We are waiting for a kingdom. We are waiting for the day of God's visitation. This is an Advent text. Through this season, as we are, as we are you know, setting up the Christmas trees, as we're put, baking the cookies, as we're putting out the candles, as we're planning the Christmas parties, as we're singing in concerts, we are, we are, we are preparing our hearts to meditate once again on the first Advent of the Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus Christ, who came to visit us Yet, we church know that this is not the end of the story. We live in exile as strangers and exiles in this world right now, and we are awaiting the second advent of our Lord. We are awaiting thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We are citizens of another place, and we eagerly await a Savior from there. That is the message at the end of the book of Genesis. It is written to a people in exile awaiting 
a Savior. And He has come. And He is coming. If you're here today, I pray. If you're here today, you don't yet know Jesus Christ. I pray that through this Christmas season, God will give you the gift of faith. That in repentance you will come, just like Joseph's brothers, but to the greater Joseph, you will come and bow down before him, presenting yourself to him. Take me as your servant. And he will say to you, I have called you my brother. And the father would say, I have called you my son. And may we as the church long for our home. And may we not mourn the day of our death. But know it as a day of exodus as we await the kingdom.